Welcome. My name is John Posh. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Metrosense MRI Safety Talks podcast series. My guest today is Tobias Gilk. Toby is an architect, was a member of the ACR's MRI Safety Committee for the 2007 guidance document, is one of the founding members of the ABMRS and that organization's past chair. But most relevant to today's topic, Toby's a member of the current ACR MRI Safety Committee and one of the contributing authors for the new 2020 document. He also serves as a consultant to Metrosense. In today's podcast, we will discuss the many questions we received during the recent webinar with Tobias Gilk on the ACR's brand new publication, Manual on MRI Safety, which replaces the prior 2013 ACR guidance document on MRI safe practices. If you joined us for that webinar, first, thank you, and we think you'll appreciate this additional information. But even if you didn't watch the webinar, which, by the way, is available for free on the Metrosense website, we think you'll still get a lot out of the questions that the audience asked. And this is Toby Gilk. Thank you, John, for the introduction. Um, before we get into the substance of the questions and the answers, I, I just want to make one thing perfectly clear. While I am a co-author of the new manual on MRI safety and a member of the ACR's MR Safety Committee, I don't want to, there to be any confusion. I, I don't speak for the ACR itself. Uh, the answers to today's questions are going to be my own personal thoughts and interpretations, and I don't want to pretend to be speaking on behalf of the ACR or any other organization for this podcast. Um, if you have questions about accreditation standards from the ACR or Joint Commission or anyone else, the definitive source for answers to those questions will be those organizations themselves. So the answers I'm going to give you hopefully will be helpful to practice, but they shouldn't be understood to be the ACR's official interpretations. And here endeth the disclaimer. So after last week's webinar, we received hundreds of questions. Now, it will not be possible to answer all of them, but when we removed duplicates and combined similar ones together, we were able to whittle the pool down to a manageable volume. If you asked a question during the webinar and you don't hear your question in this podcast, please know that we tried to cover as much information as we could in the available time we have, but that some editing of the content was necessary. And if you ask questions in the webinar about general safety topics, not specific to the new manual on MRI safety, many of those subjects are planned topics for upcoming webinars and podcasts. For ease of following along, we group the questions into categories, which are best practices, enforceability, the ABMRS, miscellaneous, risk assessment, defined roles, SAR-SED, pregnant patients, patient prep, orbit screening, hearing protection, risk management, the timeout process, training, and staffing. So let's jump right in, shall we? We'll start with some of the bigger picture issues about how the new manual on MRI safety works and its relationship to other standards or accreditations, and then we'll tackle some of the more specific questions related to the criteria of individual parts within the new manual. So we'll start off with best practices. So the question is, our hospital is DNV accredited. Is the ACR manual only for accredited ACR hospitals? Um. As with prior 
editions of the guidance document or originally the white paper. The current manual is a best practice guidance and it applies to everybody who actually wants to practice safely, uh, regardless of the setting, regardless of what state or federal authority you're licensed under or what accreditation you do have, whether that's modality or enterprise level accreditation. So um, no, it's not the, the, the manual is not specifically or exclusively for ACR accredited sites. It should be seen as being for everybody. So let's talk about enforceability. Question, we sometimes hear that the ACR guidance document is a recommendation and that it doesn't have to be followed. Does the ACR require the new MRI safety manual guidelines to be followed? Okay, first I'm going to going to explore the the key word in in that question recommendation. So, um yes, the new manual does contain recommendations, but I wouldn't characterize them as just recommendations. I mean, my brother-in-law recommending, you know, that I get a, my nipples pierced, that's that's just a recommendation. Um these are best practice criteria uh, recognize the world over. The individual um, performance criteria have been published in peer-reviewed documents over close to the last 20 years. Uh, so while it's not um, directly enforceable, I mean, it, it lives as a recommendation, uh, I would say that there's an awful lot of weight, a lot of substance behind that recommendation. So in general, with the manual being a recommendation, will not following the manual keep you from getting an ACR accreditation? Uh, all right. So allowing for my previous example that not all recommendations should be seen as equal, some of them have more weight than others. That being said, no, the ACR does not, as of right now when we're recording this podcast, um, it does not require that you follow all of the criteria of the new manual on MR safety. Um, now, ACR can update their criteria whenever they so choose. Um, so just because that's the way it is today doesn't mean that's the way it will be in perpetuity on in the future. So next up, let's talk about the ABMRS. We, we got lots of questions about the MRMD, MRSO, and MRSE credentials. So many, in fact, that we've decided we're going to do a separate podcast just about these credentials, the certifications, uh, and their tie-in to accreditation requirements. But uh, let's take the one question that really starts us down the road. Does the ACR manual on MRI safety require MRMD, MRSO, and MRSEs to be present? Okay, so looking at the overall manual in the context of sort of its enforceability, um, the the manual can't by itself require anything, including designating MRMDs, MRSOs, or MRSEs, um, much less having those individuals in those roles certified or credentialed by the ABMRS. But even with that being said, I, I can't see a plausible reason not to have, at a bare minimum, MRMD and MRSO named for each MRI provider. Uh, and if you have a, a contract physicist, or even better, one on staff, 
then there's no reason that you shouldn't have an MRSE as well. All that really takes is, you know, walking up to somebody and saying, congratulations, Bob, you know, you are our new MRSO. Um, you can appoint somebody who's already in um, a radiologist position for the MRMD, senior tech, senior MR tech for the MRSO, medical physicist for the MRSE. Um, and if they feel uncomfortable in those roles, then they can kind of expand their capabilities, their knowledge, and, and grow into that. But simply identifying and designating somebody to do that, to me, that's a no-brainer. So what are your thoughts on individual institutions switching from uh, a, a policy-style manual to more of uh, an MRI safety manual in the format used in the current MRI safety manual from the ACR? So... Um, Policies and procedures, and, and in the, the webinar, I kept using PMP as, as the acronym. So if you were confused by PMP, that's policies and procedures. Um, the two things that I think your policy and procedure manual should have, um, or goals of the individual policies, are that they should be both specific. Um, somebody who reads through it should know exactly what steps they are supposed to take, and it should be helpful you know, if you tell somebody to get the left-handed widget, you probably in your policy want to say, and oh, by the way, we store the left-handed widget in this closet. Um, in a way, I think your policies and procedures manual for MR safety should really be a dummy's guide. Um, how you want to get things done and why we do them the way that we do or what the rationale behind them is. It should also be really easy to find the information that answers the question you have in the moment. You, you shouldn't have to go searching through a 50-page document to figure out where in that document you know, quench policies are, for example. Um, so I guess in that respect, no, I don't think policies and procedures should be written like the, the ACR manual on MRI safety, although it does have a table of contents so you can zip to things. So I'm hedging here. So I guess as long as whatever you have is both specific and helpful, um, to be honest with you, I really don't care if it's a coloring book or graphic novel or written with text shorthand and emojis, or if it is a novel as thick as War and Peace. If, if it does the job it needs to do, if it is both specific and helpful, then that is ultimately what I care about. I think that's where where the real benefit is. Do you agree with that, John? I do. Um, I like a little more meat on my policies. I, I think policies should be instructional and educational. So therefore, I think there should be room for some narrative. But uh, I, I don't think they have to be real long and detailed beyond what's usable. Um they're a tool that helps you in, in doing your job. And, and if that tool is not easily usable, then that tool will not get used. I think we are in 100% agreement. Are there major differences from other international MRI guidances and document standards? And if not, why not create an international standards? And, and if there are differences, what are those major differences? That, that's a really great question. Um, MR safety by and large, I mean, the physics principles are, are universal. 
Um, but there are some differences between this document, the, the ACR manual, and, for example, the UK's MHRA safety guidance document. Um, but those differences are really pretty narrow, and they really pertain to different legal responsibilities and authorities in the UK versus the US, um, different administrative classifications of risk that the overwhelming majority of the content between these two, the, the ACR manual and the UK's MHRA document, overwhelmingly, they are fundamentally the same um, when it comes to, to the core of, of MR safety. Um, as for why not create some sort of, you know, umbrella international standard, I suspect that's because coming from the ACR, and the ACR is the American College of Radiology, their principal awareness and concern is still for radiology in the Americas, although they are increasingly doing modality level accreditation in many other parts of the world. Last question in this category, are the technologists required to read the new manual? Um, why wouldn't an MR tech uh, read this document? Um, it really defines the state of the art with respect to MR safe practices. Um, not that everyone is compelled to follow every recommendation in the manual, but I'm of the opinion that every tech and every MR reading radiologist should be at least familiar with what the recommendations are. Um, that to me just seems like a basic professional responsibility for everybody who has a direct role in MR patient care. Yeah, I'm actually a big fan of making it a directed reading as part of the annual education program for MRI technologists and uh, actually level one, level two, regardless of what the functional role group is. So I think I think it's a, a key element of, te- of education in that regard. I would support that as well. So here's a question about MRI risk assessments. Like with the MRMD, MRSO, and MRSE topic, there were lots of questions about MRI risk assessment. So we're going to tackle the opening question here, but look for a future webinar and or podcast on the topic of MRI risk assessments. Is the MRI risk assessment completed by an outside entity? Um. It depends. <laughs> uh, risk assessment can be completed either by internal or external staff. Although I have to say that frequently having a fresh set of eyes um, is often really helpful. And so in that regard, uh, sort of an external uh, reviewer or uh, auditor might be really productive. Now, ultimately, the object of a risk assessment is to walk away with a clear indication of what your risks are, and I group them into clinical, operational, and physical environment risks, Um, what your existing best practices are for managing each of those different classifications of risk, what your facility practice is doing, are you actually matching what your policies and best practices are, and what changes could be implemented to reduce the the risk exposure that you have. I've been doing risk assessments for quite some time. I know John has been doing it for at least as long. Um, and, and the two of us are going to be working together on the webinar and podcast to help those of you who want to better understand the process, whether that's to simply 
better understand what needs are for an MR risk assessment or to better learn how you might want to do them on your own. So look for that in the weeks ahead. So let's talk about the defined roles in MRI. Um, Question number one was asked by someone who feels very uneasy about having non-MRI personnel working with patients or inside the MRI scan room. Um, What's your opinion on that? Um, I believe that anyone who has regular and recurring responsibilities in MR zones three or four, and certainly zone four, those people should be MR safety trained. Full stop. No ambiguity about it. Now, what that safety training looks like um, per the ACR manual on MR safety, that really needs to be defined by the MRMD, the physician who is responsible for MR-safe practices at your facility. So the second question is kind of a corollary. Um, Can MRI assistants be trained as level two personnel? The short answer is yes, absolutely. Um, It it, honestly has taken some rethinking for me. I had previously thought of level one and level two um, MR safety training as representing specific levels or, or curriculum of training. But level one and level two are really sort of classes of, of training, classes of responsibility. Um, level one is trained so that they know enough that they're not a danger to themselves or to somebody else, but they don't necessarily know enough to be responsible for other people. Um, now, I, I do lots and lots of MR safety training at hospitals, imaging facilities. And I'm an architect. I'm not a technologist or a radiologist. But I think at most sites, I would probably be a best fit with their level two categorization. So if an architect can be level two trained, I think ultimately it's all a question of what do you expect the individuals in those different classifications, what do you expect them to know and how do you expect them to, to be able to demonstrate or validate um, that they have that knowledge, that capability? Um, and again, ultimately, this needs to be identified, defined by the MRMD who oversees the safety of your MR program. So let's move on to SAR and SED. Um, what is the benefit of considering SED instead of SAR? And is there any benefit to using both? Um, in the general patient population, uh, no, there's no real benefit to using both. Um, there's no magic said number that defines the boundary between safe and unsafe study conditions. Um, so said is essentially accumulated SAR. It exists as a measure because some patients who were having extremely long exams, you know, two, three, four hour exams, those exams, those patients also sometimes had instances of focal burns. And the thinking was, well, if we make it difficult to have those extraordinarily long studies, we'll reduce the potential for burns. But burns can be produced literally in a matter of seconds under the right conditions. So making exams shorter only makes shorter exams. It doesn't necessarily reduce the risk of focal burns. So said to me doesn't really help very much um, and I I'm dubious 
personally. So if the MRI system does not restrict scanning at a specific SED, is there a maximum value that is dangerous to the patient and should not be exceeded? Okay, to answer this question, let's let's rewind and let's go back. So SED is accumulated SAR. SAR was developed to monitor and control for diffuse tissue warming. Um, and honestly, it's actually a really good tool for that purpose. Now, we, we have SAR and we've tried to use that one tool to try and also control for focal heating and implant safety. And we do these derivatives, uh, you know, said as a derivative of SAR, um, it just doesn't work really well. Um, SAR and its derivative said really aren't effective for implant and device safety. They're not really effective for focal heating. Um, and said as sort of uh, over time accumulated SAR is even less useful for those purposes than SAR is. Now, personally, I wish that the IEC, the group that came up with said, or FDA who regulates medical devices in the United States, I really wish they would drive a stake through the heart of said so that we never had to talk about it ever again, because I don't think it's particularly useful. I think it's a solution in search of a problem. So let's talk about pregnant patients. Why has the ACR not taken a concrete stance on imaging pregnant patients? They continue to advise risk-benefit analysis despite no evidence of harm, and the question cites patient pregnancies. The vast majority of data today has failed to show that exposure to MRI has deleterious effects on the developing fetus. I suppose the short answer is that even non-contrast MR imaging of pregnant patients, it still makes a lot of people nervous. That's in part because there's really, there's no ethical way to do a double-blind experiment on pregnant patients for MR. So we really can't conclusively test for the safety of, of MR on pregnant patients. Um, epidemiologically, it seems pretty clear that any risk that does exist is really, really, really small. But when it comes to the health and safety of pregnant patients, um, it's understandable that we have a higher bar for, for certainty. So I think that the guidance from the ACR manual on MRI safety is trying to strike a balance between the fact that we have no evidence of harm, and yet we also really can't generate direct evidence of safety of MR imaging of pregnant patients. So I think that the language that's used is trying to walk that line and, and trying, to, trying to accept the fact that there's ambiguity on either side, the risk and, and the safety side of this question. So the next question is about patient preparation. We've been having patients change out of their street clothes for several years now. On occasion, we get pushback from the patient. Um, I've told my team that we are observing a zero-tolerance approach to this. The patient almost always then complies. How are other facilities handling this issue? I think patient changing is one of the areas where there has been a pretty significant shift going on right in front of our eyes. Just 10 years ago, it seemed like every site was really reluctant to change patients. And now we're seeing increasing numbers of them changing all of their patients, either mostly change them or even all the way down to skin. 
it's it is still an evolving process, but that evolution today is definitely headed in one direction to change all MR patients. Now, not every site is there, but that is the direction that we're moving as as an industry, as a profession. John, do you do you think that that's a clear direction for for where we're headed? I do. I think we're making a lot of progress in that direction. But like every other process in MRI, it's kind of slow. Um, but I believe we'll get there eventually. The next question concerns medication patches. I understand the need for physician input to remove a patch. If the patch has a foil backing, is it still suggested not to perform the MRI if we can't remove the patch? I think the best answer to this this is not unique. Lots of, of situations we get presented with are not simple yes-no kind of uh, responses. But I think this illustrates kind of the multi-step process, which should be clearly defined in your site's policies and procedure manuals. So if the medication on that transdermal patch, if it has no contraindication for heating, um, and it's not going to be within the volume of RF deposition, which depending on patient positioning and what study and what you're using for transmit, um, if it's not going to be in the RF and there's no heat contraindication, I don't see a compelling reason to remove the patch, not for a safety reason. Now, some patches may be able to remain e even with a, a heat sink, even if it is within the volume of RF deposition. Um, if ultimately the decision is, yes, the patch does need to be removed, there should be, in my opinion, a physician direction to remove the patch. Ideally, that should come from the prescribing physician, but this could also be the supervising physician, the radiologist in most cases. So uh, I think, yes, we should have physician direction, but um, that can be written as policy and we really shouldn't be refusing exams to patients who have transdermal patches simply because they show up and we don't have a note from their doctor. So there were several questions around glucose monitoring devices, and the general consensus of those questions is, do they fall under the same guidelines of medical patches? Anecdotally, I've heard of tax radiographers with CGF, continuous glucose monitoring devices, um, going into and out of the magnet room without damage to the device. Um, but anything that would be subject to RF exposure or exposure to the time-varying gradient energies, so more or less anything inside the board during the study, that would make me a bit nervous. Um, so yeah, I would recommend removing them from all patients before entering zone four, as long as the duration of the study that you have planned doesn't create concerns about the patient's glucose management. Last question in patient prep. Would you have to get a physician's order before disconnecting an insulin pump? I do think physician direction, uh, again, either from the prescribing physician or the radiologist would be wise. Yes. Many patients on CGM and or insulin pumps, they know their diabetes risk as well as, or maybe even better than their docs. So 
I'm not suggesting that an insulin pump patient should be refused an MR exam if they don't show up with a, a notarized note from their regular doc blessed by their priest or rabbi issued in triplicate. There, there's a lot of room here to make policies that simultaneously recognize the potential risks of being removed, patient being separated from that vital therapy device, and simultaneously, the capability of many of these patients to make informed decisions about those risks on their own. So the next question is about orbits. Are there any new changes or recommendations regarding the screening for metal in the orbits? There is a slight change in the recommendation for two views. Um, that's been reduced to a recommendation for a single view with the option at the radiologist's discretion for additional views. This is an attempt to balance the known risk of x-ray exposure to, to the lens, to the eyes, against what is typically a pretty low reward study. I mean, rarely do screening films for foreign bodies in the eye, rarely does that, do we see something there that changes the decision to go forward with an MR. So the next question is about hearing protection. How would you recommend that we verify fit and function of hearing protection? There are a couple of ways that, that I recommend. Um, one is if you have a radio playing or, or some other kind of continuous sound source. Um, if the patient cups their hands over their ears as if they were trying to protect themselves from a loud noise, if they cup their hands over their ears and they can tell a difference in the loudness of the radio with the hands over their ears as opposed to not, then the earplugs aren't incorrectly. If they have the earplugs incorrectly, putting their hands over the ears should offer no benefit. Um, another technique is if you are behind the patient or otherwise out of eye shot uh, from the patient, and you can whisper to them, give them a direction, hey, Mr. Jones, turn around. Um, if they respond to, to the commands, if they hear and react to the whispered instruction, again, the earplugs aren't incorrectly because they shouldn't be able to hear sound that soft. Close to 90% of the reported cases of hearing damage occur for patients who were given hearing protection. So clearly there are a number of patients who don't know how to effectively place the earplugs in order to get the intended effect. And we need to do a better job. We need to help them and make sure that they understand how to place them properly, that we're checking the, the placement of, of the earplugs, and that we're making sure that they're working the way that they're supposed to before we take them in for the study. So the next question is about risk management. What are the implications of using a tethered MRI unsafe anesthesia machine in a complex dynamic environment like an hybrid MR? Okay, so MR conditional labels for, for equipment, not implants and devices, but things that you're using uh, for patient care, monitoring support. MR conditional labels don't just tell you that the object's not going to go flying at the magnet. If that's all they did, then sure, the tether works just fine to achieve the same result. But they're also there to assure you that the device will function pro properly when it sits bathed in continuous magnetism. 
Um, while I do think that if you had a, a specific case and you had acute needs of an individual patient and somebody said, hey, let's use a conventional um, anesthesia machine or ventilator um, because the risk-benefit decision says, yeah, we should do that, I'm okay with that. But if your site is making that same decision over and over several times a week, multiple times a month, um, if you've gone to the trouble of having a tether to keep your regular non-immor-conditional anesthesia machine from, from getting too close to the magnet, that suggests to me that that is a decision you're making lots and lots of times. Then if that's the case, I think it's past time to get an anesthesia machine you know is safe and effective in MR, an MR-conditional device. If... Uh, Based on the question, it's kind of complicated, but if the anesthesia machine is being tethered outside the MR scanner room to help prevent it from inadvertently being dragged into the, the magnet room, um, that, I think, is a really smart forcing function to help keep dangerous accidents from happening. If that's the case, then I would also hope that there's a checklist, a timeout procedure associated with that so if there's a door between, say, a cath function and the MR function, and we have the vent or anesthesia machine on the cath side of that equation, before we open the door between the two, we double check and we make sure that the tether is in place and that anything that needs to happen as a, uh, a function of moving the patient from one room to the next is done in the safest way possible. So let's talk about the timeout process. Are there some examples of final check slash timeout checklists that can be used in MRI, especially for EPIC? This is one of the tools that we're currently working on for the upcoming MRI risk assessment webinar and podcasts, not exclusively for EPIC, but, but the timeout process in general. Um, we don't have it for distribution right now, um, but here's what I think should be fundamental parts of a timeout process. And, and if you want to put this into a checklist in Epic or Cerner, you know, whatever tools you want, or just have a written checklist, that's cool. Um, each patient, each caregiver, and each piece of equipment about to enter the MRI scan room should stop. Um, and we should, you know, for all of the staff, we should conduct the, our regular you know, pre-entry Macarena, checking all of the pockets, um, any place that we might hide stuff. Um, we should re-verify all the equipment, devices, transports, monitors, medication pumps. Um, we should make sure that everything that's about to go into that room is MR conditional. If we're about to move a patient in who's altered or otherwise non-responsive, we should double check all of their pockets and in the blankets and make sure that there's nothing, ECG patches and leads, uh, pulse ox leads, make sure that nothing that might have come down with them from the floors is about to go into the magnet room unless and until we verified it for MR conditionality. We want to make sure that nothing is sneaking into the room without our, our review and check. For ambulatory persons, whether that's, um, you know, staff or patients, individually do quick checks with the doorway ferromagnetic detection system. If you have ferrous-free transports, even better. You can do that for your non-ambulatory patients. 
Um, these are steps that I see as kind of being essential to that overall pre-entry timeout process. So let's talk briefly about training. Which program for annual MRI staff safety education do you recommend? This person, the person asking this question said, we have six level two and 15 level one personnel. Do you recommend videos, PowerPoints, or webinars? So my smart aleck answer is whatever one your MRMD has reviewed and chosen as being appropriate to the educational needs of your class one, your level one, level two personnel. Um, as we discussed earlier, level one and level two should be seen as broad classes of capability, um, capability to be responsible for others or not inside zones three and four. It should not be viewed as a specific curriculum or a, a narrow set of minimum competencies. Your level one environmental service person, for example, should be getting a vastly different content and, and training than a level one CRNA because they deal with very different sets of risks and responsibilities. I would venture to guess that your site probably has three or five or 10 different needs at level one. People who only need to be trained to not be a danger to themselves and probably also several different levels at or several different needs at level two. Um, maybe technologists and radiologists, and maybe we say anesthesia, we really want trained at level two. I do believe that each type of MR safety training, whatever the content and competencies are defined for that type, it should be repeated at least annually. Um, I would also suggest that everyone should consider MRMD or MRSO training for everybody you want to designate as level two. Not that you need to do a whole multi-day MRMD, MRSO training course every year. That'd be pretty intense. Um, but I hope that that curriculum, that competency, would ultimately be a goal uh, for development for everybody who has level two training. The final category is staffing. Question. We all want to staff in the most safe manner. There are times, however, when two people are not possible. Are these guidelines or ACR requirements for accreditation? Um, in a word, no, they're not currently requirements for ACR MR accreditation. Um, but unless you only have one MR safety trained person who works for the whole hospital, the whole imaging center, I, I'm going to push back on the idea that it's not possible to have two people. It may be difficult, it might even be impractical, but it's probably not impossible. What about training other people, uh, somebody else to be that additional person? Um, do you have radiology nursing staff? Do you have cross-trained CT techs, uh, somebody who understands MR and, you know, the, the hurdle to, to achieve level one, level two training, you know, wouldn't necessarily be so great. Um, I think that you could identify other people in your organization who could be trained up to level one and that those people could serve in sort of, you know, overnight on call or emergent situations um, to be able to provide you with that, that additional person uh, to staff. 
I think there are lots of other ways you can get uh, trained eyes and ears to help support the, the scanning technologist in a situation where that's indicated. And we'll close out today's podcast with one of perhaps the single most asked questions from the webinar. If there are two magnets in zone three, with a tech on each, does this constitute compliance with the ACR's new manual on MRI safety? The question specifically references each tech is taking care of a patient, so they would the, the person asking the question would assume the answer is no, since the tech can't leave his or her patient to help on the other magnet. And the person asking this question has really hit on one of the reasons that I've started calling this a plus one staffing model. Uh, so you, you have two magnets that share a common control room. What's the minimum staffing? Well, so it starts out with two, one for each of the two MRIs, plus one. Um, so for two magnets with a shared control area, the minimum recommended staffing would be three people with MR safety training. So you can kind of extrapolate this out to, to unreasonable extremes. And I imagine you could have a long row of, say, eight magnets side by side by side by side. And the plus one staffing model would say you need to have a minimum of nine MR safety trained individuals in that common shared suite. I would hope that some common sense would prevail and people would realize that it's really impractical for that one additional person to actually provide meaningful coverage to eight separate magnets. Um, so I, I think the basic arrangement in, in the scenario that the questioner laid out, you know, two magnets with three people, um, I think that that seems like a, a, a generally safe and, and smart approach, one and a half people per magnet, rounded up to the nearest whole person, <laughs> unless you can get a half person. So that about does it for us today. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the MetroSense MRI Safety Podcast Series. Please watch for future episodes where we will discuss all things MRI, such as safety, identifying and managing risk, accident prevention, burns, legal concerns, and MRI screening. We'll also have an exciting lineup of guests that will appear from time to time, so please be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. For additional information, be sure to explore the MetroSense library of MRI webinars at www.metrosense.com. As always, all content is free of charge. Thanks for listening, and a big thank you to my guest, Toby Gilk. Peace and safety.